Good morning again. Uh, We are continuing our series that we started this fall looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. Last week we looked at, um, David showed us chapter 3, how life, how righteousness is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And what David showed us was that our faith isn't about us. It isn't a work. It's a gift given to us by God, and it isn't a generic faith in God. It's faith in Jesus specifically, the one who died and rose again from the dead. And what is important is having him and him alone as the object of our faith. And this morning, as we turn to chapter 4, Paul is continuing his argument concerning faith and the law by turning to Abraham. And the question he is asking in the text this morning is this, how do you belong to God's family? What makes you a part of God's family? How do you answer that question this morning? How would people around you that don't know Jesus answer that question for you? The way that we answer that question about how do you belong to God's family is of utmost importance for us, for our lives, and for our joining in the mission of Jesus setting the whole world to rights. Because for Paul and for us, it actually is the hinge upon, all of wh- upon which all of life turns. So let's turn together to Romans 4, 1 to 26. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Uh, This is God's word given for his glory and for our good. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. 
and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Please pray with me. Father, this is a lot. Uh, This is a different time, um, a different place, a different context. Uh, We need you to meet with us, to open our, our eyes and our ears, soften our hearts, help us to hear your words and your gospel this morning. We know that we can't do anything to make you love us. But that's why Jesus came. Soften us. Help us to to learn and to listen from you this morning. Uh, We thank you for your goodness and that you desire to be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can't come in here like that. These were the words that I heard this past summer while I was in Atlanta. I was with a group of friends, and we went to this secret, swanky, exclusive speakeasy uh, called the Red Phone Booth. It was probably the coolest place I've ever been. Uh, We'd walked several blocks from our hotel. We entered the secret phone number in the phone booth that was the password that changed every day. I still don't know how we got it. And the phone booth that was in the side of this building just randomly opened up and there was this secret passage into this establishment. And I followed my friends in and the guy at the door stopped me and said, you can't come in here like that. I was wearing a button-up shirt and pants and because it was summer in Atlanta, my chacos. Um, I needed to be wearing closed-toed shoes apparently in order to get in. He said there was a dress code And unless I complied with it, I wasn't welcome. I didn't belong there. So in order for me to belong there, I had to comply with their standards, with their rules. I had to run back to my hotel and change and fix myself up and go back in hoping I got it right this time. You know, that story really brings us to our passage this morning because we do that all the time with God's family too. Christians, the church, God's people can often put expectations and rules around what it means to belong to God's family, whether for ourselves or for those around us. There are external things. You have to agree with these doctrines. You have to do these certain things. You have to follow these rules and these customs. You have to look this way. You have to vote this way. You have to do education this way. You have to do parenting and work this way and obey God this way. It's exhausting. You can commit these sins, but these ones aren't really respectable, so you can't do those. We, we make these badges for what it means to belong to God's family, but Paul says there's one badge that marks God's family. There has only ever been one, and it's not all these external things. It's not these laws. It's not these things that you can do or perform. 
Paul is saying in this passage this morning, the way you belong to God's family, the only mark or badge of belonging to God's people is and only ever has been faith. Nothing else. Faith in the risen Jesus. Faith in a faithful God who keeps His promises. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's response to this question, how do you belong to God's family? And first, we're going to look at the the ways that you don't belong to God's family. Paul begins chapter 4 by asking the question, what then shall we say? He's just made this great claim at the end of chapter 3 that justification with God is by faith in Christ alone. And he concludes chapter 3 by saying, with this faith, there's no boasting. There's no boasting in yourself because you didn't do anything to earn it or merit it or deserve his love and favor. And then he concludes by saying, but this faith upholds the law. So what then shall we say? And he turns to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, arguably the most important person in, in the history of Israel. And he says, what does he have to say about this? The first answer that Paul gives is that Abraham was not justified by works. Now when we say justified, it's a big churchy word, but remember, it it means that God is declaring us who are guilty sinners righteous, good, perfect, acceptable in His sight. It's a declaration from God where we are made and declared whole and holy. And in verse 2, Paul says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Meaning Abraham is included in all of humanity in Paul's previous statements in chapter 3. There's no one righteous, not even one, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Abraham is included in that. So if Abraham was saved by his obedience, he'd have something to boast about with his relationship with God. His being made right would have been made through his efforts and through his trying and his succeeding and being good enough. But because he was just as broken and just as sinful as you and I are, he had nothing to boast about before God. So Paul is responding to this Jewish tradition uh, that claimed all over its writings things like this. Abraham did not sin against God. He was perfect in all of his actions with the Lord and was pleasing through righteousness all the days of his life. But if you know anything about the story of Abraham, you know that's not true. You know that he was a terribly broken man. He was a terrible husband. He lied about being married to his wife twice and offered her to other men in order to save himself. He tried to fulfill God's promise to give him a child through Sarah um, by sleeping with Sarah's maiden, Hagar, and they had a son named Ishmael. And then when the son who was actually promised, when Isaac shows up on the scene, when he's born, Abraham sends Hagar and, Isaac, or and Ishmael, his own son, to go die in the desert. Abraham's obedience, his works of the law, did not save him. He had nothing to boast about before God, but his failures did not disqualify him either. The righteousness God granted to him was not his reward for his faithfulness, as Paul refers to in verses 4 and 5. God was not obligated to declare him righteous because Abraham was so good. The righteousness granted to Abraham was a gift, not because of his works, not because, but because only he trusted the God who justifies the ungodly. 
So he doesn't belong because of his works, but it wasn't his circumcision either. If you remember, this was a couple weeks ago when I preached, circumcision was the entry right into God's covenant family. But for some in the Jewish community, it had become the way of salvation. If you had this mark, it was the visa by which you ensured your access to heaven. So in verse 9, Paul asks, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Verse 10, he continues, was righteousness credited to him after he was circumcised or before? You see, the timing here is very significant. And Paul tells us that it was not after, but before he was circumcised that he received the righteousness credited to him. Circumcision, this outward religious identity marker, was not the thing that made Abraham righteous. Paul goes on in verse 11 to tell us that he received circumcision as a sign and as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. For the Jewish people of God, their adherence to and their possessing the outward religious identity marker, it was not what saved them. It was the mark of a relationship that they enjoyed by faith through the Lord's grace. It wasn't their get-out-of-hell-free card. So if Abraham was credited righteousness after he was circumcised, you could argue, like the Jews are doing, that Abraham's righteousness was based on this outward religious act, and therefore it would only be available to the Jews. But Paul says that's not the case. Righteousness comes by faith 14 to 20 years before circumcision even happens. Therefore, circumcision and any outward religious identity marker is not the mark of God's family which is why Paul can say this isn't just for the Jews. This is for everyone, circumcised and uncircumcised. Abraham is the father of us all who believe, who are uncircumcised, as well as those who believe who are circumcised, Paul says. Can you imagine being a Gentile Christian in Rome, hearing this for the first time? You mean I'm not a second-class member of this family? I'm a full fledged heir and child of the living God. I'm a member of his family. So belonging to God's family is not achieved through obedience and the works of the law. It's not through having the outward religious identity marker and circumcision. And lastly, it's not the Mosaic law either. Verse 13 says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul is making his point even clearer here. The law came 500 years after the promise made to Abraham. So the promise wasn't contingent upon Abraham keeping the law. The law didn't even exist yet. So that's why in verse 14, Paul can say, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, meaning if those who depend on the law for their righteousness before God, for their standing before God, then that means faith means nothing. And the promise is absolutely worthless because the law brings wrath. The law cannot save you. It was not meant to. It can only reveal to you your brokenness and your need for someone to fix you. The law's job is to show you how you fall short. It's a mirror. It reflects reality. And the reality is we are all broken, sinful messes who do not measure up We don't love God perfectly with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. Yeah, you might keep the law better 
than some around you, but you don't keep it perfectly. You're not as good as God. You don't have any reason to boast if he showed up and said, tell me how great you are. So it means that if you slip up even once, we deserve punishment for our sin. That's why the law can only bring wrath. It was never meant to save us, but to show us our need of one who would come to rescue us, one who would come and take our place in punishment and give us his seat of status and perfect righteousness. But if you want to go ahead and live under the law, Paul saying, meaning if you want to make the law the standard by which you and the people around you are acceptable before God, you're placing yourself under its curses for not fulfilling and obeying it completely. It's a fool's errand, as he has said earlier. John Calvin says it this way, if it's the case that the inheritance is to be based on adherence to the law, then there will be no heirs. Because no fallen human being can adequately adhere to the law, and that means that faith is exercised in vain and the promise will never be fulfilled. See how damaging it is to rely on the law for your righteousness? To place your trust in your own goodness? I want you to hear me. This is the point that Paul is making. And stay with me, because I know this is going to be very painful and very raw for some of you. Um, This past week in Game 4 of the NLCS, in the first inning, Jose Altuve... It's a line drive that could potentially be a home run and tie the game. But Mookie Betts leaps, the right fielder for the Red Sox, leaps in, jumps to make the catch. And there's a great debate as to whether or not the fans entered the field of play and interfered or not. That's not the point. Either way, the call on the field by the umpire was fan interference. The Astro fans on the right field wall wanted to catch the ball from Altuve as much as Mookie Betts did. But when the fans got involved, when they tried to grab hold of the ball, all that resulted was interference. Because the the fans got involved and tried to grab it, nothing good came out of it. And that's what Paul's saying to us. Whether it's through the works of the law, through circumcision, through the law itself, if you try to trust in and depend on yourself and grab hold of his righteousness for yourself, on your, using your religiosity, using that for your right standing, for your acceptableness before God, before you're being declared righteous before Him, you're just going to mess it up and be called for interference. You see, what are you trusting in this morning? Where are you self-satisfied? What's causing you to boast, to look down on those who don't measure up? What have you made the mark of belonging to God's family? Is it how good you are? Is it how closely you follow God's word? Is it how long you've been a follower of Jesus? Is it the family or the church that you came from? Is it how good your theology is? How reformed you are? How Presbyterian you are? Does the type of school you attend or your family has chosen make you good and worthy and better? What marks you as belonging to God's family And what marks those that don't? Is it how involved and faithful you are in your church? Is it how successful you are? How much money you give away? How much service you do? Is it the way that you vote or the political party that you align yourself with? Is it because you've been baptized even? 
You know, I have this outward religious identity marker, so I'm safe. I'm included. I'm part of the family. You know, for me as a pastor, I work for the church. I've been theologically trained. I've gone to seminary. I've passed exams and have tricked people into ordaining me. Is that what makes me secure? Are those the marks that tell me I belong to God's family? I have to check my heart constantly to make sure that I'm not relying on those outward, external things that I contribute to make sure that I know God loves me. So, what is that mark? We've already said it's faith. It was faith for Abraham. It was faith for David as we saw. It's faith for us. The way to belong to God's family is and always has been faith. Okay, well, faith in what? Faith. In a faithful God who keeps His promises. It's believing God will do what He says He'll do. For Abraham, verse 3 says, He believed God and it was credited to Him as righteousness. It doesn't say He believed in God. It's not just in a sense okay, yeah, God exists. It's not even believing in a God who saves. Tim Teller says it's believing God when he promises a way of salvation by grace. It's ending trusting in ourselves and starting to trust in God's provision for us. It's a transfer of trust off of ourselves and placing it on the God who keeps his promises. Verse 5 says, However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. So, according to Paul here, a saved person, a righteous person, does not work. It doesn't mean that we disregard the law. He's already said that we don't. It means that we stop trusting in our own obedience as a way to be saved. A Christian, Keller continues, is one who stops working to be saved not one who stops working. It's trusting God who justifies the ungodly. And Abraham and you and I all fit in that category. And then we can't place our our faith in our own faith. This is some of what David talked about last week. This faith isn't a work. We're called to believe like Abraham in verse 12. Faith isn't the work that saves us. Faith is trusting in the God who provides, the one who keeps his promises. And what did God promise Abraham? He promised him a descendant. He promised him that his name, father of many nations, would hold true. That God would be with him and he would bless the whole world through him and his family. Abraham's faith and our faith is to be a faith in the faithful God. It's not in the adequacy of our faithfulness, but it's faith that God is able to do as he says. Abraham looked forward to a descendant, a son being born, to God keeping his promises, and we look back at one of those descendants of Abraham, another son that was born, that came to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, to fulfill all of Scripture. Verse 25 says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, the only one who lived a perfect life, who kept the law perfectly, who loved God and his neighbor perfectly, who didn't fall short even one time, who died on the cross, identifying for the people he was coming to pay the punishment for, satisfying 
the cost of your and my sin and was raised from the dead, defeating sin and death and evil forever, securing His people for Himself, securing those who would believe in Him, giving them righteousness forever because of Him. And verse 16 says it's guaranteed. That's who we look toward and believe and we trust in. And this righteousness credited to us isn't from trying to be a good Christian. It's not for believing in God and trying to do what He wants. It's not even because you believe in God with your whole heart. It's not works. It's not faith plus works. And it's not faith as a work. Faith is trusting in God's promise to save and in Him and in His ability alone. It's the only marker of God's family. And so what does that faith produce? Quickly, it means that your sin is forgiven completely and you're credited righteousness. It means that all of Jesus' perfect record is given to you even though you've only earned death and punishment. A couple months ago at men's night, we were wrapping up and I asked the waiter for our check and he said, it's already been paid. You don't owe anything. Someone else had paid my balance and in fact had paid the balance for the entire table. What we owed has been paid for. And when Jesus dies on the cross and is raised again, verse 25 says, He's delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It means this. It means He was delivered to death because of our sins. Because our sins needed to be dealt with and paid for and we couldn't bear the cost. And He was raised to life in order to secure our justification. God the Father raised Jesus the Son from the dead in order to credit you as righteous. He paid what you owed. But He didn't just pay for our meal. It's like He went into our bank accounts and filled them with an unlimited amount of money. The righteousness that has been credited to you is is a righteousness that is completely Jesus's and it's been given all to you. It means you are now counted as perfect in God's sight. You are loved completely and perfectly. All that is true about Jesus becomes true about you now. So now by faith in God, because you've been credited righteousness, you are secure in Him. You only have God's smile. Even though we fail and we sin, our status is secure. It cannot be taken. It cannot be removed. It can't be lessened. If you have faith in God through Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he's delighted and he rejoices. And Zephaniah 3 says he sings. Having faith means that even in the face of broken circumstances, whether because of our sin or terrible things that happen to us or around us, we don't lose hope. Verse 18 says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed meaning our circumstances may tell us that things are bleak, that humanly speaking, there is no reason to hope, but we believe in a God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Just as Abraham believed God's promise, even when his body told him he was as good as dead and his wife's womb was dead, he believed the promise that a son would come. Isaac was just a foretaste 
of resurrection and his being born and life coming from death. And we have more than Abraham did. We have the promise fulfilled that Jesus came and died and rose for our sins again. And he promises he will return and he will set the whole world to right. It doesn't mean that everything is going to work out for us until he comes back, but it does mean that he's coming that he's kept his promise in the past and he will keep it in the future and he is coming to undo all that is broken and sad. He's coming to undo every wrong and injustice. He will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sadness or mourning or pain. And it's true. It's coming. We have faith in a God who is faithful, who kept his promises and we can have confidence that he is going to keep them in the future. And lastly, what faith means for you it means you're not alone. It means you belong to a family. Verse 23 says, These words were not written for him alone, but for us. When we come to God by faith in him and his promises, we belong to a new family. We belong to Abraham's family. He's the father of all of us who believe. His story becomes our story. The story of God from the beginning of creation pursuing a people for himself and setting the world to rights in Jesus becomes your story and you are an active participant in it. And God promises that he's going to bless and change the whole world through this family that you are a part of now. So you are included in God's family by faith and only by faith and you are now part of that vehicle through which God is going to bless the entire world. Do you see that this morning? The only thing you need to belong is faith in the one who is faithful. So what are you trusting in this morning? How do you belong to God's family? Have you made something other than faith be the mark of what it means to be in the family of God? Come this morning. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in the one who's faithful, the one who loves you, the one who died for you and was raised for you so that you, broken sinner as you and I are, might be counted righteous in his sight. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for Paul and his words that you've given him to challenge and encourage us to point us to you and your gospel. Help us to turn away from the things that we might cling to that are not the marks of your people. That we would turn to you and rest in you completely. That we would transfer our trust off of ourselves onto you, the God who keeps his promises the God who promised to come and rescue us and deal with our needy condition, and you've done it. Meet with us at this table this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.